So much has changed since last Easter. The world has been shaken. Life has been disrupted. What we once called normal seems like it may never return. It's been easy to be discouraged, to lose hope, to feel the foundations of our faith begin to crumble. It's hard to keep our feet planted when the ground beneath feels like shifting sand. Now more than ever, we need to stand on the truth of Easter, a day which changed our eternity, changed our world forever. Death was defeated by life. Sin was consumed by mercy. The grave was swallowed up by victory. See, even in the darkest of moments, the love of Jesus could not be stopped. His faithfulness could not be broken. And when the dust settled, Jesus, he stood alive and victorious. Today, may we remember the truth of Easter, the power of the resurrection, and the promise of eternity. Yes, the world has been shaken, but the grave, it's still empty. And Jesus, he's still risen. Resurrection Sunday, uh, or Easter Sunday, is really the crowning moment, the crowning day for Christians. Um, Christians don't believe that it's just that a Jewish man died 2,000 years ago and he was buried and uh, then he rose again on the third day. But we believe that this act, the historical act, has eternal significance. In fact, we believe that it changes our lives. Thousands of people, millions of people's lives have been changed when they believed and knew that Christ has come back from the dead. Now, if I was to ask you, who wants change, right? I mean, we all want transformation. That's exactly what the resurrection has done for millions of people. And so all of us can come here on a Sunday morning or whatever you do on Sundays if you, didn't, if you usually don't come here to a church. But we want change, right? We want change in our bodies. We want to be more fit, stronger. We want uh, to change in our mind, think better, think clearly, be nicer to people, right? Then you get on Facebook and you make some bad comments on Facebook on some political post, and then you see just how depraved you truly are, right? Um, you know, you think of change. You want to grow. You want to self-develop. You want a better job, especially this past year. We want to be a people of change. And I'm talking about humanity as a whole. Well, Christianity argues that transformation and change can actually happen, but it does not begin externally, but it begins here. And if you leave this morning with just one verse to remember, or you go, well, this is what I got from the sermon. I'm just going to read to you Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart for everything, not, not part of it, everything you do flows from it. So when you think about change and transformation in our lives as people, the reason things are not working out so well for you is not because you're not trying hard enough. It's not because you're not really thinking you know, as hard as you can to make changes in your life. The reason why change doesn't happen in our lives is because there's something called a wicked heart, a heart that's sick, a heart that's jealous, a heart that's hurting, a heart that's broken, a heart that's angry, a heart that's wounded. So you know what you do to others? You do the same. Okay, everything that flows out of the heart 
That's what the Bible says, guard it. And so Christianity is transformational belief. It actually transforms your heart, meaning it changes the lives of those who believe in these central pillars of the message of Jesus. And there is no more uh, you know, uh, important pillar than that of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was so important. I mean, this resurrection thing happening is so important that Paul actually said this, and I have this passage here on the screen for you. 1 Corinthians 15 Verses 4 through 19. He says, this is Paul, an apostle um, in, in, the, in the New Testament. If Christ had not been raised, meaning the resurrection, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep um, in Christ are also lost. If only this life we have hope in Christ, we're all of people most to be pitied. In other words, if the resurrection wasn't true, you're wasting your time this morning. All, everything we just did here this morning, such beautiful things, the singing, the, the praying, it's all, it's all a waste. Paul makes the argument here that if the resurrection is not true, then all of this is in vain. And so Paul says that this is exactly what you must believe in the resurrection. It is that glue in which uh, everything hinges upon. He explains that the resurrection is not just a fundamental part of the good news of Jesus Christ, but it is the glue that holds it together. So if you say you're a Christian this morning, or you say that I love Jesus, but you don't believe in the resurrection, there's a, there, there's a, there's a gap, there's a crack in your belief system. And so when you're trying to change and you're trying to grow into all these things that you feel in your life, it will always fail. You know why? You know why? Because you don't have the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you want change this morning, that's what the sermon is going to be about. You want new life. You want a transformation in your life. Christianity, I'm going to make the argument this morning, that Christianity is the only religion that can truly bring true change and true transformation. And I don't mean transformational on a meta level, right? On a philosophical level. On a, yeah, let's just think about change and do the process and let, 10 steps to change. That's not what I'm saying. But a true change that goes from the inside out, from the spirit to the physical, that it's living and active. But first, you must first believe in the resurrection. You must first believe why this event actually took place. So this morning, the sermon is entitled The, um, the Eternal Significance of the Resurrection. So we're going to look at the historical uh, significance, meaning I'm going to make a case of why you should believe that the resurrection actually took place. Because if you really don't, if you think it's a fable, if you think that that's just a fairy tale you were told when you were a kid, then your uh, grounding for change is loose and weak. But then after that, we're going to look at the eternal significance of why, if, if Jesus did actually um, resurrect from the dead, uh, what does that mean for you in your life of change, in your transformation? And we're going to look at three things there, and then we're going to pray, and, and I'm going to give you a chance for you to pray to the Lord to change your heart. All right, with that, let me, let me pray as we begin this morning. Father, we pray for a people of change. Father, I pray this morning that the resurrection of Jesus Christ may be renewed, restored in our hearts. Father, that the resurrection of Christ may not be a fable or an old story that we kind of heard from our parents, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ may be that which gives us new life tonight, to today, this morning. Maybe that which uh, propels us into completely changing our paradigm about our very life. That, Lord, we may believe in it, but live out the resurrected life in Jesus. I pray for our people, Lord, those who are visiting us here this morning, that they may hear this message and feel encouraged by your great grace that is poured out on those who look for it. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen. Now, every once in a while, uh, if you like, if you're a news person, right, the news offers us documentaries, right? Documentaries that are, it's always about some historical event that's really fascinating, and it always talks about how it impacted us today, right? Uh, think about um, Edison's electric light bulb, right, 1879, illuminated, you know, our days and nights. I watched stuff from World War II, right, the first man on the moon. We, there's movies about these uh, events and how they really change the way we think and view our life. But when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, and, and I mean, I don't know if you've, you've, uh, you've watched some, some, of the, some of this stuff, but, but I have one here. It's always this investigative sense. It's always assuming that it actually didn't take place, and now we're going to investigate to see if it's true, right? Uh, there is one, and I have a slide up there. Of the next one. I, I saw this one, and I did watch this one. It's called Finding Jesus, Faith, Fact, and Forgery. And let me read you the tagline. Six ancient relics. Can today's technology prove the authenticity of the resurrection? I mean, and, and you read the paragraphs, right? It, it's assumed that Jesus is by far a fable and a fairy tale. Now, through the years, okay, we got 2,000 years of historical evidence, there is uh, unsurmountable evidence of the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. So I'm going to give you three historical proofs. Okay, this is meant to, if, you, if you're a skeptic or if you're a, a believer who's just kind of going, yeah, I don't want to think about that too much. I don't know how to explain it to people. I'm going to give you just three ways in, in which the resurrection actually took place. And, and it is, although it is not the grounding for your belief, because we believe by faith, it, it is uh, a, a real tool for us to believe in the resurrection. So number one, it is the fact that if you're going to make the case for the resurrection, you need witnesses. And that's exactly what the resurrection has. There were living witnesses um, about this resurrection. The New Testament accounts of the resurrection were being circulated within 30 years of, um, of Jesus' death. And, and the people that were there that saw the resurrection actually read the papers or the New Testament that spoke of his resurrection. This is what Paul uh, says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. This is talking about the resurrection. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And watch this. And He appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. And then to the twelve. He doesn't stop there. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom, watch this, they're still living. Though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then of all the apostles, and then uh, appeared to me also. Right, so, so think about this. this is, uh, the apostle is appealing to the audience's knowledge. Now, for some of you that are saying, well, that's found in the Bible, but is, is the Bible reliable, right? I mean, the, the, any scholar, even secular or Christian, will tell you that the Bible is the most historical, documented piece of literature we have ever had. There are more copies of the Bible than uh, any other historical document in the history of humanity. Did you know that? There, there's more proof that the Bible existed, was written within 30 to 40 years of Jesus walking on the earth with, with incredible accuracy that scholars and historians still can attest that the Bible can be trusted. So if, if that is the case, and Paul is saying, well, if, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. Now, if you think about 500 witnesses of this resurrection, is proof to us that there were people that could have said, what, what could it have said, right, during these first 34 years? That's not true. They're going to write some treatise down. They're going to write some stories that said that's not true. This is exactly what happened. You know how many copies of, the, of those things we have, how many refu refutes and, and arguments against the resurrection we have from this period? Zero. 
but we have 5,000 copies of the New Testament. Think about that for a second. I mean, the, the proof is unsurmountable. Now, now, let me give you this on an uh, illustration level, right? So if you take 500 witnesses who saw Jesus alive after his death, and they're still walking around during the time these letters are being circulated, right? And you place them in a courtroom, and you give them six minutes, including cross-examination, to, to ask him about their testimony. You would have over 50 hours of, first, uh, of first-hand witnesses. Now, add to this, right, testimony of other people, right, that would have seen this act. And, and you, uh, this is why I think you would have the largest most lopsided trial in history. Uh, anybody ever watched those shows, Dateline? You've seen that? Da- anybody watched it? Maybe it's just me. But, but if you watch those Dateline shows, right, there's always, you know how many witnesses you need to convict? It's like one. I mean, if, if this, you have one guy that saw the thing and he can prove that fact, that guy's guilty, right? That, that guy killed his wife. I mean, you just know that's what happened, right? Well, here you have 500 witnesses. And so as you think about you know, the, the historical significance and the proof at first is the fact that there were living witnesses during the time of the writing of this book that could have said, no, that's not true, and we have zero copies of that. So number two, again, this is for you skeptic out there or you that says, I don't even know why I believe in the resurrection. Number two, it is the type of witnesses. The first sight witnesses of the resurrection were women. Okay, all the Gospels note that the first individu- uh, individuals uh, that discovered the tomb were women. This is Matthew 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, at the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the, uh, and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. And we know this, right? This is verse 6. He's not there. He has risen, just as sh- he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Now, now why does this matter? Okay, women were not held in high esteem in the ancient world. In Greek or Roman world, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. In Jewish circles, you needed two women, okay, to equate to the testimony of one man. Now, let me read to you what um, first century historian Flavius Josephus wrote. This is the guy that has uh, every, even if you're in high school, any type of historical documents that you learn about, uh, about, about Christianity, about uh, Jewish culture, comes from this guy in the first century. Right after Jesus uh, came on the scene, he came after him. This is what he wrote. This is a thousand years ago. He said, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, since it is prob- probable that they may not speak truth either out of hope of, of gain or fear of punishment. Now, don't you want to smack this guy, ladies, right now, right, 21st century? You're like, oh, no, he didn't. No, he did not just say that. We're not going to make the sex war argument right now. All I'm saying is this is how it was, all right? So, so be angry at, at Josephus and what he said. But, but the point is this. That if the apostles had fabricated the Easter account, um, they wouldn't have done this, right? Think about it. If you were faking your own death and you wanted people to believe it, you would probably look for witnesses that were credible, right? Do you guys agree with that, right? If you're, if you're going to make a lie, you want to make it right. In fact, each of the four Gospels present Mary Magdalene as the first person to inform the disciples. They're not hiding the fact that it was women, the ones that first saw the resurrected Messiah. So the only logical uh, reason to, to do so at the time was because they were just stating the facts, right? And again, I would have picked dead witnesses, people who were not alive, and people that had some sense of authority and power, but yet we don't see that. So, so again, you have living witnesses. You have really odd, uh, you know, type of witnesses. 
But, but number three, and this is where I think um, we, we, it kind of connects to our theme of change this morning, is that the New Testament describes remarkable and enduring transformation of 11 men. Okay? These frightened cowards that followed Jesus, denied him, and left him by Sunday night, Monday, and the rest of their lives will, uh, in some cases, become martyrs. They live with one main command. Jesus told them, go and make disciples. How do we do that? Just do it because I'm with you. And they would go and give their lives. These are uneducated fishermen who were called to change the world. Now think about you in your just regular 9 to 5 blue collar job being called out of where you are. And, and you go, go win the world for Christ. That's a very um, high tall order. But yet these men um, quickly gave their lives for Christ. Now we can say, well, if there were visible benefits, right, if they were going to have prestige, wealth, increased social status, material benefits, then we would say, well, that makes sense. There's a big reward to following Jesus, right? But in fact, the way they were rewarded was being beaten, stoned to death, thrown into lions, tortured, and crucified. Every conceivable way was done to, uh, to make them stop. They laid down their lives as ultimate proof that they had seen the risen Messiah, and the truth of their message. Now, skeptics uh, throughout the centuries have claimed that they may have made up this story. It was really no dead body. But it is highly unlikely because when they were threatened with execution and death, some of them crucified upside down. You know what they said? Let it happen. Indeed, liars make bad martyrs. Liars make bad martyrs. Think of James, the brother of Jesus, was changed from a skeptic to a believer because of the resurrection. Think about Paul. He was a persecuted a, a Christian. He, he crucified, well, he, he killed the first uh, martyr in, in, in the book of Acts. Yet we have a transformational moment for him when he meets the resurrected Christ, and, and the world was never the same. He preached the gospel to the Gentiles. And so uh, as you think about this, we think about these three things. We think about the uh, living witnesses, the type of witnesses, and the life of the witnesses, all of which has uh, uh, exponentially grown the church. And, and so uh, as you think about the, the case for the resurrection, if you're a skeptic, if, you're, if you really don't think this took place, uh, I will tell you to, to look at those three things as the reality of why you should believe in the resurrection and why it actually took place in historical time. But... That's not all, right? This morning is not about some apologetic point of why you should believe on the historical resurrection. It's about the eternal significance of that. So if we end there, if we end in just the historical nature of it, we're, we're really missing the whole thing. See, the resurrection is not a naked historical fact. Okay, what, what do I mean by that, right? That, uh, think about this. Um, George, I mean, we know this, that George Washington was the first president of the United States, right? 1789 to 1797. We know that he led the War of Independence. We, we know that he existed. We know that, um, you know, he was an incredible, uh, incredibly gifted leader. But, but that's that, right? You don't, you don't kind of pick up the Constitution. You know, you read it and you go, oh, man, that's, I feel George Washington's presence, man. He, I mean, he was real 200 years ago. Right? That's not what you do. Right? Because it's, it's just it's a fact of life, right? And so why do we as believers and Christians find an eternal significant uh, purpose here in the resurrection. And so I'm going to give you um, um, three, way, three, three things um, that uh, the scripture tells us. I, th I think there's a lot more than these, but I'll give you three that I think I'm going to encourage you this morning to not only believe, um, not only know that the resurrection happened, but ultimately 
give your life to the resurrected Messiah. Because if you truly want change in your life, and I know that many of us are, are going through hardship. I know that a lot of us, I'm sure, especially this past year, are looking to just, how can I just change the, 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 the pattern that I'm in? And, and the only way you're going to do it, as we began this morning, is through, through gravitating to receiving, to believing in this eternal significance of the resurrection. So let me, let me before I begin, let, let's go to Matthew 28. So if you have your Bibles, should be up here in front of you. Go to Matthew 28. Uh, it, it's going to be the same version I have, should be. It's a, the NIV version. So Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. And as you go there, let me give you just a brief context. Jesus has resurrected from the dead. Okay, he is alive, right? He's in his glorified body. And he's giving his disciples the last command that he would give them. This command, we call it the Great Commission. Basically calling his disciples to go and go make more disciples. But I want you to, uh, what I want to emphasize here is how he ends this command. This is Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. Then Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And watch how he ends this. And surely I am with you to this, to the very end of the age. Think about this. The, the last thing that Jesus tells the witnesses of the resurrection as a resurrected Messiah, it's a command, but then he ends it this way. I am going to be with you. See, the reason why the resurrection is significant is because there's this promise that God will always be with us. I think some of us need to hear that this morning. See, uh, uh, it's not just that I'm going to give you a job like he's telling them. It's not just you're going to go ahead and preach the gospel and you're going to win the world for me. You're not going to do it alone. That's what he's saying. I'm going to be with you. I have all authority and power to make this plan work. Now, I don't know if, how many of you have a bad boss that's like on you and says, you've know, you got to produce, man. You've got to keep going, pushing you the hours. They want commitment, more time, more expectations. And you feel the weight of that. And you feel like... Man, I don't, like, I don't like this job, right? Jesus is saying this, as I send you to do this, I am going to be with you. And guess what? I'm the king. I have all authority in heaven and on earth. So if, you, if your success depends on my authority and power. Now, I think for us, we have to think about this reality that Christ is always with us. That once Jesus resurrected from the dead, there's this promise that he will never leave the elect. He will never leave those who have been called to him. Um, let, me, let, me tell you, let me read to you Romans 8, 28. This is how he leads. This is how he, he makes things work out for those who believe. Uh, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. I'm going to say that again. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So, so when we say God is with us, we don't just mean like he's kind of with you and just kind of tolerating you and he's kind of annoyed by you. It actually means that he's in you and he's actually guiding you through his, through his Holy Spirit. What we mean is that God works all things in our lives for those who come and believe in the resurrected Christ for the good of his name. And here's how that, that looks practically, is that God works all evil for good. That's really what that means. God works all evil for good. Now, if you were first century, you see Jesus being crucified, uh, all these onlookers, people just, uh, you know, uh, cursing Jesus, uh, talking against Jesus, you know, um, saying all these things about him. Um, if you look at it and you see this figure Christ on the cross, what do you think people were saying? 
How can God break something good out of that? How can God make that a blessing to people? Yeah, that's exactly what God did. What good could come out of it? Well, God brought salvation through the suffering of the Messiah. So his resurrection is a cosmic zeal on all the plans he has for humanity. He will be with us till the very end. There were times in the Old Testament where God actually wanted to get rid of mankind because of how sinful they were. Well, now he says, I'm not only never going to leave you, I'm, I'm never going to you know, obliterate you, but I'm going to be with you till the very end of the age, and I'm going to control everything you do. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be walking you through your journey. Now, let me tell you how that's applicable for us this morning. Is there something in your life that you're looking at and saying, I don't know how God can bring anything good out of this thing? Now, think about that. Is there anything in your life that, that you're looking at and, and you're saying, I don't, God, if there is a God, how is he going to get me out of this mess? Well, Jesus has made a pledge to never leave us alone in our decision making. He's in control now, and God will work all evil and suffering for his good. But, but, but it begins with the resurrection. It was the resurrected Messiah that said this truth. You guys with me so far? Amen? All right, so, so number one is, is what is the eternal significance? That you are not on your own. Think about that. You are not alone. Even though you think you are, when you do what you do, you're ultimately not alone. You have a king in heaven ruling and reigning uh, who has all authority to make his, his, his glory and power go through us. So that's number one. Number two, Christ has made us alive with resurrection power. Okay, now if you're, if you're a Christian, you heard this word resurrection power a lot. Power, what do you think of when you think of power, right? You think of a powerful bodybuilder. You think of an extraordinary powerful person. Uh, maybe you think of this guy. Right? This is, this is as creative as I get. You think of this, this guy, right? Uh, power and ability, superhuman strength, uh, incredible reflexes, power over weather and lightning, manipulation of uh, energy projection. Uh, I, I think that's what this guy does. I'm not a Marvel guy, so if you're Marvel guys, don't, 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 don't say anything. I, I don't follow this stuff. But here's the point. We kind of think of uh, the power of the resurrection as this sort of like supernatural power that is just going to explode, you know? But... But, but I think we have to understand the nature of what power, uh, what other power is going against us. See, Scripture teaches that the world today is under an influence or a power that is supernatural. In fact, every person born is under this power. And this power in Scripture is called sin. This is why your child at two, three months old or two, three years old, right, already begins to throw foot at you, right, spit at you, pull your hair, right? Uh, uh, scholars call this the nature of original sin. All of us have this power that uh, when you're trying to change, you notice that you try to change and you just kind of go back and mess up, right? You, you kind of go back to the way you used to. Um, the Bible says this is bondage. There's actually a force in your life that, that, that actually doesn't let you transform. You're, you're enslaved to it. This is what's keeping you from changing you can try as hard as you can i'm telling you right now by every self-help book that you want but that book is ultimately gonna go away and you'll get a new one it's gonna tell you the same thing because there's a force there's a power inside of you that has you enslaved and this is what john 8 38 says jesus said this everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin okay the result of this power uh, according to Romans 6.23, is that is death. So there's, so, so think, before you think about the power of the resurrection, think about the power of sin and the power of death. 
that all of us, the moment we're born, we have a 100% mortality rate, right? We have a rate of death that is 100%. No amount of effort, medical technology, power, riches can make you escape of this clutch of death. And so this is the power that is at work in the world. Now, add to that this, right? You have an enemy, right, called Satan who is accusing you and telling you what? You're not good enough, right? God doesn't love you. Then you have people around you who are just mean to you, right? Aren't they? I mean, you have people around your life that just make your life miserable. So you have indwelling sin. You have Satan on you. You have people all around you you just don't like. Do you think that's an environment for change? Not really. So when you think about transformation, there's so many areas in which we can change simply because we're bound in an environment of sin. And so here's why the resurrection is significant. The resurrection, when Jesus rose from the dead, it actually, um, it, there was a power over sin and death. He actually said that death could no longer hold them down. Right? We, 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 if that, this wasn't true, we would have no more than a mythological uh, person, a powerful demigod who said some things, but really it wasn't really true because he didn't come back from the dead, that his power was limited. Jesus would be at best a teacher or a prophet and at worst a complete fraud, preaching righteousness, but ultimately not able to defeat that which we all end up being dead people. Yet the resurrection is a reality and a seal that everyone who comes in Christ will be made alive and made new. Acts 1.8, Jesus says this as he sends his disciples to this task of the Great Commission and, and, and making more disciples. He says, and you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So if you're talking about change, um, let me just be honest with you. You don't have the power to change. You know, how, how motivational is that, right? Uh, you want to change. You don't have the power to change. But you know who does? The resurrected Christ, amen? And so what do we do? We come and we come together and we say, I don't have the power, but he does. Why? Because he overcame death and the sin, the very sin that has me like this and doesn't let me transform into what God has called me to do. Amen? Amen. The resurrection power over sin and death is made effective through the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person that gives us power that gives us the true reality, the spiritual nature of how to move forward in the midst of this broken world. Ephesians 3.20, Paul says this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, according to my power, no, according to his power that is at work within us. Saints, if we're talking about change, if you really want to see a transformation in your family, you want to see a transformation in your financial life. You want to see a transformation in your, uh, in your kids. You want to see a, tr just, you know, not just turn over a new leaf, right, because leaves will come back. But, but really, a transformational life, if you want that, we must come to the person that has completely changed history and has overcome death. So the resurrection is significant because Christ's power that defeated death, okay, is something we can uh, cry out to this morning. Christ is with us always. And Christ has made us alive with resurrection power. Let me, let me give you the, the last one here. Christ has given us a living hope. And Michael shared this passage this morning. And, and let me just uh, read this uh, from 1 Peter 1. Praise be to God um, and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Christ. Uh, ever since I was a kid, I, I was always a disappointed kid. I feel disappointed with people, um, uh, friends, school, you name it, right? I was extremely cynical with people. They, every, time, every time my mom promised me something, she never kept it, right? There was always hope in, in all these things that, they, that were promised to me, and, and I just, they were never done. I, there were times that I put my trust in people, and those people that I care for, you know what they did? They broke my trust. The people that, that I had put all my hope on, you know what they did? They, they didn't keep their end of the bargain. So what it began to do, uh, even as a, a young kid, as, as a teenage kid, it began to bring more and more failure in your life, you, uh, distrust with everyone, right? And, and really, it's because we're imperfect people. That's really why this happens. Imperfection breeds hopelessness. So, so what the resurrection does, and, and again, I'm, I'm calling you, uh, you to track with me here as you think about what the resurrection and the significance is for you uh, this morning, is that the hope that people give you, it's always a hope that is imperfect. You guys believe that, right? Every hope that people give you, every time people says, trust me, right? At the end of that trust, there is an infallible infall- uh, f- person who can in time just break your heart and, uh, and really uh, not keep the, their end of the bargain. But when we come to Jesus Christ, we have a living hope, not a dead hope, a hope of a new birth and a hope that tells us that he is for us. When you come and hear Christ, and hear the gospel, the word of God, you're hearing, a, you're hearing a reality that the spirit of God is actually alive. Because he is alive, he is at work in us today. He is providing true hope in the midst of fears and disillusionment. At the new birth, when you believe in Christ and you give your life to Christ this morning, or as you come into saving faith, right, there's going to become hard times. It's going to be, uh, in fact, maybe harder times than where you are today. And you're going to be wondering, maybe I should leave. Maybe I should, uh, Christ is not with me. Well, you have a living hope. Christ will not leave you, and this is our hope. We place our trust in Christ. Death has no power. Sin has no power. It's an everyday thing. So here's, again, this is practical what we mean uh, by that. On one level, Christian hope doesn't ignore fear, anxiety, or doubt, but it confronts it. Because it holds steady and clings to peace. It clings, it clings to the hope that Jesus was resurrected from the dead for me. He is alive for me. I can always count and put my trust in him. If, but if Christ resurrected from the dead and the resurrection is true, then this means that this word of love will never be wiped away. It means that he will always, uh, I will always be a son. I will always be a daughter, even when people are not. Even when people reject me, even when people are not for me, God is for me. Amen? This is why the resurrection matters. You now have a Father in heaven in whom you can put all your hope and trust in. And, and, but there's another level in which this is a living hope. There's a greater hope that is actually, uh, I would say, the one that Paul talks about here in verse 4. He says this, into an inheritance that can never perish. Uh, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept, where is it kept? Say it with me. In heaven, right? You see it, right? This inheritance is kept in heaven. See, in, in, there's a way in which uh, Christ is ruling and reigning here today, helping soothe our sorrow, giving us hope for tomorrow, breathing life into us as we feel dead because of the nature of the environment we live in. But, but there's a way in which that, that, that's also not enough. There is a time in, in the future where Jesus would actually uh, give us a crown before him, where we worship him and see him face to face. 
There is an inheritance that is better than this place on the earth that he will make known to us when he comes back. And it's not on the earth. So where are you putting all your riches? Where are you putting all your hope? What person has all your heart? What job has all uh, your emotions and time? If you put all your hope in this world, then you're truly not living for this living hope. Paul says that there is a way in which there's a future time where you will be with Christ. We may suffer in this life with pales and illnesses, but because, of the resur- because the resurrection has taken place, we are assured that we will come also and be resurrected in our bodies in the future. Now, I know that you're like, man, that's so weird. What is that going to look like? Well, the Bible talks about this, but, but even before that, even past that, this means that you have to assess where you put your hope in in this world. You have to assess where is your mind, where is your heart, where is your life at this morning. We put far too much hope on the weatherman than we put on Jesus. We put far too much trust in our own lives, in the stock market, in the government, in those who say, I love you, than the one that says, it is finished and I am risen. Christ is with us always. Christ has made us alive in the power of the resurrection. But as I end this morning, I want to tell you that Christ has given us a living hope. And if you're talking about change, if you're talking about transformation, especially in in this, you know, spring season, right, where things are are changing, right, the flowers are coming out, and, um, and, and, you know, many of us are are looking at this past year as a pandemic year. Uh, I I just saw a Time article that said, you know, it's a lost year for many even, you know, uh, people that work and, and high school students. And we're thinking about how do we redeem this year? How do we start press delete and start again well it begins here it begins at the heart does it begin with you doing does it does it begin with you creating a, a an incredible plan to be organized of how you're going to change that may help you for for a little bit but the only way you change is by having a transformed heart that makes the resurrection a true a true a, a true aspect of the gospel and this is what ezekiel 36 26 says this is looking towards the day christ would come be resurrected and bring life to us. He says this, this is a promise for you, okay? This is for you. If your heart is broken, if if your trust is broken, if you need the power of the resurrection to transform the way you view your marriage, your life, your children, your workplace, this is the promise for us. This is what God says to us. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove you, I will remove your heart of stone and give you your heart of flesh. That's, how it, that's what I want for us this morning. As I shared on the historical significance, maybe there's something there like, man, I never knew that. I mean, that's kind of cool. But as we think about the eternal resurrection, maybe, maybe you're, you're, you're asking. Maybe your heart is, is dead. Maybe your heart is, is hard towards God. Maybe your heart, as we think about the, you know, the, the, that he's with you always, you say, well, everybody's left me. And when I think about he's alive with you through the power of resurrection, you said, well, I don't feel him. We think about hope. Well, everybody has broken their trust with me. And so when it comes to Christ, you cannot, fully, you cannot fully put all your trust in him. The biggest mistake we make is that we try, um, we try really hard for transformation. We try to, really hard to see transformation in our lives. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, actually say that, that it's actually wrong for you to think that you have the power to change. You know, you know you don't have the power to change. You know that, right? At the core of you, we're weak people. At the core of us, we're people that need a Savior. 
The transforming power of the gospel rests on the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So the resurrection tells us this, God is with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Once and for all, if you come into saving faith and believe in His Son, the cross, the burial and resurrection of Christ, who's taken on all your sin, all the guilt, all the shame that you feel, that actually puts a burden on you. All, all those things that you feel. And Jesus put it on Himself. He's nailed it on the cross. And in His righteousness, He's now placed it on you. And He says, you are holy. You're beautiful. You're worthy. You're special. That's what Christ says to us this morning. Maybe you don't have the power to change. Maybe you're dealing with addiction or you're dealing with um, things that you're doing in secret that nobody knows and you're trying to quit that stuff. And you're trying to change and really be a different person. Maybe you're trying to come back to church. Maybe you're trying to forget about the past and say, I need to move on. I need a new thing for my family. I need something different for my life. You can't do it on your own. I'm telling you right now, you need the resurrection power that crushes sin and death in your life. And lastly, you have a hope, a new hope. A hope of a life today where you, no matter what you do, no matter how far you fail, no matter how far away from God you feel, you can come back to Him and He'll be like this. Just come back. It's okay. It's okay. Come. It's okay. No matter what you did, it could be the most horrible thing you think you've done. You can come back to me. That's our hope every single day. We're not perfect people. Christians are, you know, what, what do they say? The church is like a hospital, right? Don't they say that? The church is full of broken, sinful people trying to preach about a perfect Savior. But then we have a living hope. Even when things don't go right, we have a hope of the coming resurrection that Christ was the first fruits telling us that will be our ultimate end. We will be resurrected with a new body in a new heavens and earth knowing, knowing Christ as He is. So let me, pray for, let me pray for us this morning as we end and encourage you to believe in the resurrection. If you want transformation, you must come to your knees, come to the altar and say, I believe in the resurrection. 